Hello, it's Tuesday, March the 8th. I'm Andrew Pearce, and this is the Andrew Pearce Show coming as ever from the Daily Mail Newsroom. Coming up, cologne for dogs. Would you buy it for your pooch? Also, it's International Women's Day, but are some women actually their own worst enemy? The cost of living crisis, an estimate now that the typical household will see their income fall by £1,000 in a year. But first, I'm talking to the former government minister who now says there has to be a no-fly zone over Ukraine, and yes, he knows it could potentially trigger a nuclear war. So the British government has again rejected any attempts to enforce a no-fly zone in Ukraine, saying it would be seen as an act of war against Russia and could result in a catastrophic escalation. However, in a powerful piece in today's Daily Mail, Norman Baker, who was a Home Office minister and a Lib Dem MP for Lewis, argues that Vladimir Putin's behaviour echoed that of Adolf Hitler and there now is no choice but to enforce a no-fly zone. He joins me now. Well, you're hardly singing from the Lib Dem hymn sheet, Mr Baker, are you? I'm singing from uh, the hymn sheet of uh, logic and uh, sadness that this is probably the only way to deal with uh, Vladimir Putin and in the mood he's in and, and the characteristics he's displaying. Look, I, mean, I totally understand how uh, people are very nervous about this, and uh, undoubtedly this will be seen as an escalation, and we don't know where that would go. So I share those concerns, but the reality is that we cannot have a situation where Vladimir Putin continues to land grab bits of uh, the former Soviet Union, which he fancies, and holds a kind of nuclear blackmail over the, over the West. He's going to carry on doing this. He's made his views very plain. He wants to recreate the Soviet Union. So the question really is not whether NATO engages with them or not. The question is whether we engage with them now or later. But Vladimir Putin doesn't have a reverse gear. If we were to set up the no-fly zone and Russian planes flew into the no-fly zone or NATO planes flew into the no-fly zone, they're going to take each other out. Doesn't that then lead to NATO yeah. becoming engaged in a full-scale war with Russia? It may, it may well do. Um, it may well be a localised war or a full-scale war. It depends how Putin reacts. But the reality is Putin will also be governed by what his generals and others say. So I think personally that the idea that he'll press a nuclear button is, is unlikely because he knows the consequences for Russia. This is the whole basis of mutually obscure, assured destruction that has fed through Soviet policy and American policy for the last 50, 60 years. But the reality is, what well, if we don't apply a new fire zone? That's what people have to ask themselves. The first thing that happens in the short term is the total destruction of Ukraine the massacre of his citizens. We've, we've seen that he's got no compunction about bombing citizens and starving them to death in, in areas where they're contained. Uh, I'll be prepared to see hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Ukrainians dead uh, who are actually fighting for democracy and fighting for the West and allowing a triumph of this mad dictator. That's one issue. But the second issue is this. If he, if he finishes off Ukraine without NATO challenging him, then he'll move on to Moldova. He'll move on to Georgia. He may move on to Estonia, Latvia and Estonia. And Lithuania, you know, he won't stop. He's made this very plain. We literally just look at what Putin has said over the last 10 years to know where he's going. You say there, when I said it could possibly lead to nuclear war, you said that's unlikely. That's not good enough, is it, Mr Baker? Yes, unlikely. That... Haven't you got to be absolutely certain there's no possibility of a nuclear war? Because if there is nuclear war, it could be the end of the world, literally. We're not absolutely certain now, Andrew. Putin's threatening nuclear weapons now if he doesn't get his way. I mean, he's all... He's threatening all sorts of people. He's threatening Sweden. He's threatening Finland. He's threatening any country that holds planes for uh, for Ukraine. He's he's made it very plain. He's prepared to consider a nuclear option. So 
that's being held over the West as a kind of means of stopping them interfering. But, you know, he, that's what he said. So in a sense, there's no difference whether we're engaged or not. He's still got that weapon available to him, which I think he might want to use anyway. You talked about Hitler, Putin and Hitler. Are you saying that the West and NATO yeah. is guilty as there was appeasement of Hitler in the 1930s? I think there's a fair parallel to be drawn. I mean, what we saw with Hitler was he went into bits of land, he uh, annexed Austria, then he then um, demanded a Sudeten land, and the West responded, the democratic countries responded by saying, OK, we'll give you this in order to keep peace. Well, the reality was he saw that as a weakness and saw it as a further encouragement to take more land, and I'm afraid that's how Vladimir Putin behaves. It's not going to happen, though, is it? Or do you think opinion is changing in the offices of NATO and some of our prime ministers and presidents? We've seen Boris Johnson meeting a number of leaders this week. They've all maintained no, no-fly zone. Well, that's a position at the moment. But I think if things deteriorate much more in Ukraine, which I think they may well do, unfortunately, then the, the, the West may revisit that. What we should be doing immediately is making sure that President Zelensky has got some planes Look, there's a 40-mile tailback of, of tanks, which are taking a very long time to get to Kiev, partly because um, the Russian soldiers aren't very keen and partly because the logistics is hopeless. But, they're, you know, they're, they're sitting ducks. I'm not particularly militaristic, but why are we bombing that line of tanks? They're sitting there like sitting ducks. Let's protect Kiev by getting rid of those tanks. He hasn't got the, he hasn't got the, even now we've been supplying our weapons, he hasn't got enough to fend off the Russians. We cannot leave it to a bunch of brave Ukrainians to hold back the Russians indefinitely. Can I ask you just finally, Mr Baker, what of British boots on the ground? Do you think if we were to enforce a no-fly zone and Russia then decided that it was a World War Three, Russia against NATO, would you then be in favour of British troops being sent into Ukraine to fight alongside the Ukrainians? No, I wouldn't. And I don't think that's necessary, actually, Andrew, because the Ukrainians have got a pretty good defence on the ground. They've got anti-aircraft missiles. They've got not just their own troops, but the whole population is prepared to engage. So I think if it comes to uh, activity on the ground, the Ukrainians can deal with it. What they need help with is the air, and that's what we're not giving them at the moment. All right, that's Norman Baker. He's the former Home Office Minister, and he was Lib Dem MP for Lewis in Sussex. So war in Ukraine is pushing up energy prices and sharply, and it's going to see UK families squeezed even further with the cost of living crisis. The Resolution Foundation forecasts a typical household income will fall by about £1,000 this year, which is the biggest real terms fall in income since the mid-1970s. I'm joined now by Mike Brewer, who's Chief Economist and Deputy Chief Executive of the Resolution Foundation. Mr Brewer, how do you get to that figure of incomes falling by £1,000? Well, as you say, the prospect for the cost of living was already looking pretty bleak before the war in Ukraine. We already knew the energy price cap was going up in April, um, and we've seen pressures on all sorts of prices as the whole world has opened up after the coronavirus pandemic. But things have got a lot worse since the war broke out in Ukraine. Obviously, they are extremely uh, bad for those people actually in Ukraine, but it will have global economic consequences too. And we thought about just what is the initial rise in oil prices? What might that do to petrol prices, the pumps? And what might the increased price of gas mean for October's energy price cap rise? We put all those together and we thought that the Bank of England in February had kind of underestimated it. And we now thought that inflation next year will peak at 8% in April and be just over 7% for the year as a whole. So inflation's at 7% next year. Incomes are going up by 4% in cash terms. That means a typical family will see their income fall by 4% 
or equivalent to a £1,000 cut. Well, we've got the Chancellor coming before the Commons in a couple of weeks' time. Spring statement, budget, call it what you will. What do you think he needs to do, Mr Brewer, to address this cost of living crisis? Because a £1,000 real terms drop is huge. Yes, it is. As you said, it will be the biggest fall in typical income since the mid-1970s. And absolutely unprecedented, given that we're not actually in a recession at the moment. The economy is technically growing. So I think the Treasury would have been hoping that the spring statement was just an update from them on how the economy is going and and not a budget. But I feel sure that he must now respond to this. And and, and that is absolutely fine. The events events have overtaken him. Obviously, last month, we had the announcement of the Rothschild about what the price cap would be in April. And Rishi Sunak announced a package of measures to respond to that. But it's clear now that the price cap will have to go up again in October. I mean, we think it might have to go by another 50%, 900 pounds in October. And it would just be unthinkable for the government not to respond to that. You know, we, we just, it's, it's not sustainable to have energy bills for a typical household you know, getting close to 3,000 pounds. So there are two things I think he will need to do, yeah. we should do, sorry. One is say now what his approach would be in October when, if energy prices go up again. So he's got time to plan, if you like, for things coming in October. But there are things you can do now. We've pointed to the benefit system and the state pension system. Benefits and the state pension will go up in April, but they'll go up by just over 3%. And that amount was based upon what inflation was back last September. That's the usual formula the government uses. But if inflation was 3% last September, we think it's going to be 8% in April. And and I, I just don't see how the government can stand there and make everyone on benefits, including all of our pensioners, take this 5% cut in the value, the real value of, of their benefits. So we'd like him to revisit that uprating decision. He might not be able to do it immediately for all benefits, but he can certainly do it for some quickly. And maybe for others, he has to put in an extra rise in October to the state pension and other benefits just to stop those on benefits from falling behind next year. No doubt he'll also want to look at things like fuel duty yeah. and maybe even to VAT. And fuel duty, of course, he can cut it substantially, I would argue. Wouldn't you say the same? Because the extra revenue the government is reaping from the huge record price levels of fuel on the forecourts at the moment. I mean, the, the government has a, a long track record of not actually increasing fuel duty. So it's been frozen in cash terms for over a decade mm. now, despite the fact they keep, so they keep, they keep promising to put up a value of inflation. In fact, they keep freezing it. So I would be absolutely amazed if the Chancellor put up fuel duty. And I think it very likely he would probably cut fuel duty. You're right. When the price of oil goes up, the government does get a bit more revenues from oil companies. And, and from the price of funds. But it, it'll still cost it some money to cut fuel duty. But I think if we continue to see the pressure on the price of petrol that we've seen recently, if that carries on, I, I imagine there will be a, a small fuel duty cut. The problem, of course, is that, is that the government will want to do something that's only temporary. So this is a temporary shock, uh, you know, temporary energy price shock. Um, and ideally, you'd want the response to be temporary. And the, so the problem with fuel duty, of course, is if he cuts it in the budget or on the spring statement, he might then find it very difficult to come back in a year or two's time and put it back to where it was. So I think just like we saw with, the en- with his response to the energy price cap, I'm sure the Treasury officials are trying to think of various measures which by their nature are automatically temporary. And so, he, so he's not sort of 
incurring a permanent cost to the Treasury. And just finally, um, this newspaper's been campaigning long and hard and loudly, unsuccessfully so far, it has to be said, Mr Brewer, for the government to scrap the planned rise in national insurance, which kicks in in April. Is it too late? Can you still get rid of it? I don't know the answer to that question. It's a good, it's a good point. I think it, it probably is too late, yes. And I think what we argue at the Resolution Foundation is it's just probably not the right response right now. We know the national insurance threshold is, is going to be it's for particularly on higher earners. And that means that the people who are really struggling from higher energy prices, which are going to be the lower paid, and also going to be pensioners, they wouldn't gain, they'd gain hardly at all from the rise of national insurance. So I don't think it's the right response to a cost of living crisis that's coming from high energy prices. But I can see why people are keen to have no more pressures on household budgets at this time. Absolutely. That's Mike Brewer, who's Chief Economist and Deputy Chief Executive of the Resolution Foundation, warning about that household income falling by £1,000 this year. Today is International Women's Day, and this year's theme is break the bias. People around the world are being encouraged to cross their arms in a show of solidarity against negative gender stereotypes. But can women be biased against themselves? Women's assertiveness coach Jodie Salt believes that by changing their own behaviour, women can actually improve their lives and help to create a more equal society. And she joins me now. Are you a supporter of International Women's Day in the first instance, Jodie? Is it important to you? Yes, it's really important to me. I'm a mother of three daughters. And how old are your daughters? Are they old enough to be aware of International Women's Day? They're getting there now, yes. So 18, 16 and 10, they are at the moment. Okay. Now, you've got to take this view, don't you, that sometimes women can be their own worst enemies, Jodie? We can be at some times, yeah. Now, obviously, there's more than one way to skin a cat. But actually, you know, sometimes this can end up in a bit of a finger pointy exercise, you know, a competition almost between men and women. And it's something that all of us can play a part in. That means there's plenty that women can do to start to break down some of the gender bias that does exist. Absolutely. You've written a best selling book, Woman Up, and that is about women literally being more assertive and perhaps setting the agenda. Yeah, that's what I specialise in, helping women to be more assertive so that they can speak up for themselves, decide what they really, really want in life and go out and get it. And why do you say sometimes women are their own worst enemies, Jodie? Is it because they're not assertive enough? What is the problem? I think, you know, there's a number of problems that play out for women. But in terms of, you know, specifically how we can be our own worst enemy is that it's about personal accountability and looking at the opportunities that we've got to increase some of the influence that we've got, you know, how we behave in certain situations. Um, They can all make a difference to how much influence we can have, the things that we can change, even making decisions about whether we conform to expectations that have been placed on on us quite often historically, you know, that have been around traditionally for many, many years. You know, it's stepping into the power of being able to influence some of that rather than feel like you've got your hands tied behind your back and having to conform almost. I think a lot of women still feel powerless in that case, you know, and I want to help them find that power so that they can make positive changes for themselves. And do you think also there is a sense that sometimes if a woman is assertive, she can often be branded strident. You never hear men being called strident, do you? No, no, that's what I've just been talking about that earlier this morning. 
actually. And, you know, and that's a real shame. There's often a couple of things playing out there. One is that, you know, there are different expectations between men and women. Yes, when men behave that way, you know, they're being really assertive and they're leading. But when women behave that way, it's aggressive and abrasive. But I think really this comes down to sometimes a difference between not men and women, but masculinity and femininity. You know, women sometimes face the the position of they're damned if they do and Mm. they're damned if they don't. So actually, the work that I try and help with women with is actually assertiveness can look different on different people. But up until now, most of the role models we've had are typically male. So it's difficult to really know what assertiveness can look like in a feminine sense. And that's the bit that I figured out. That's the bit that I try and help women with is they can be assertive. But it looks different on women than it does on men. It's almost like For a lot of women, they step into that space and it's like putting men's clothes on. They don't fit you and they don't hang right and they never were meant to. So actually it's about putting the assertive clothes on that are right for your frame and the way that your body is constructed. And when you do, they fit you well and they suit you. And then you're able to have the same kind of impact, the same kind of results, but the behavior does look very different. And do you you talk about role models? I was going to ask you that finally, Jodie. Is you do you yeah. have a preferred female role model? Is there a generic one, or perhaps a specific person that you say she gets it absolutely right, looks good, sounds good, and is assertive? Do you know what? There's no one generic version of that. I think that you know any role model for me is somebody who is really comfortable in their own skin, um, somebody who's happy to be unique, to be different somebody who's found their voice, um, you know, who will shamelessly declare any of that to the world. You know, she earns my vote. There's lots of women I would associate like that. You know, one of my all-time heroes, if we're going to call out some specific people, massive fan of Brené Brown. I love all of her work. find her books really inspiring. You know, uh, even the likes of Michelle Obama, great example of somebody who's prepared to stand up and be counted, They don't look like any particular thing. They look like what feels comfortable for them. And that's what's important. Really, really interesting. I wondered where you would put the Queen in all of this just finally. Is she a role model? So an interesting one in many, many ways. Yes, absolutely. I think she has a very, very difficult balance to maintain. You know, there's massive expectations on the role that she does. I think she manages to, you know, facilitate that very well indeed, given the challenges that you know, she does say. Very good. Hats off to her. Absolutely. That's Jodie Salt. She's a woman's assertiveness coach and she's the author of the best-selling book, Woman Up. Now, time for our regular City Update with Ruth Sunderland, who is, of course, Group Business Editor at the Daily Mail and Mail on Sunday. So, Ruth, some of them, those directors, those fat cat directors with no political judgment, are still on the boards of these Russian companies. What say you? Yeah, I say it's an absolute complete and utter disgrace. There's no excuse for people still being on the board of Russian companies at this point. We know all we need to know about the situation in Ukraine and whatever excuses that they are coming up with, frankly, just don't hold water. Now, we have seen Lord Barker become known recently as Lord Luca. He has stepped down from a miner called EN Plus, which is linked with Oleg Deripaska. Yeah. But there are a few still 
around on these boards. So there's a chap called Sir Michael Pete, who formerly worked for Prince Charles. He's sitting on the board of a company called Ivraz. On EN Plus, we have a chap called Carl Hughes, who is a Church of England lay member. And bizarrely, Andrew, a man called Xavier Rollet, who is a former chief executive of the London Stock Exchange, is insisting on staying on the board of a company called Fosagro, which is fertilizers mm. and uh, is also a Russian company. Now, that's quite contradictory when you think that the stock exchange has suspended trading yeah. in a bunch of Russian shares last week. Now, Xavier Rollet is saying, well, you know, he's not British, he's French, that the strictures that we've heard from the Institute of Directors and others don't apply to him because he's not British. Well, you know, neither is Gerhard Schroeder, who's the former German Chancellor, who's still on the board of Rosneft. Mm. But frankly, you know, I think these Western grandees, political and business grandees, it's very ill-befitting to be taking the Putin shilling after everything that we know. It's absolutely outrageous. I've known Greg Barker, Lord Barker, for a very for a long time, and I, it was mm. a matter of time before he saw the light. But, of course, these people like the money, Ruth, don't they? They're getting paid big, big salaries. They are getting paid very big salaries for doing this. You know, you're looking, in some cases, into to millions rather than hundreds of thousands. And, of course, that type of money... Can't, I wouldn't know really, but I imagine it's hard to it's hard to give up. But in the end, there comes a point where you have to take a moral stance, don't you? And I find it a little bit laughable, really, that the city's had its had its knickers in a twist for the past few years about ESG, whilst ignoring these links with Putin and with Russia. That's never been even on the ESG agenda. So I think it's very poor. You cannot at the same time have sanctions and be vowing to clamp down on dirty oligarch money and to be choking off the flow of funds to the Kremlin and still have these guys sitting on boards of Russian companies. It just makes no sense. Certainly doesn't. That's Ruth Sunderland, Group Business Editor at the Daily Mail and Mail on Sunday. And you can be quite certain the Mail will keep the pressure up on these businessmen to do the right thing and get the hell off those boards. The fragrance industry has a hot new genre, canine cologne. The perfume for dogs is designed to be used as a spritz between washes. And beauty columnist Hannah Betts has tested 10 of the best, and she joins you now. Look, we have to start, Hannah, with peach bum natural perfume for lady dogs. I mean, for heaven's sake, who came up with that name? I don't think the PRs are going to be very happy with me. No. <laughs> so they were very excited about being in the mail. Um, yes. But I don't think they were expecting to get nil point no. and um, to be told that it was an affront to all creatures, great and small. I just laughed out loud. That's why I had to start there. They say a feminine fragrance with heart notes of sweet orange, jasmine and peach. And you say... I'm afraid, yes, cloying saccharin, bargain basement potpourri. Now, let's be nice about um, somebody. What about Kiel's Cuddly Coat Cleansing Spritz? £15, but you rather liked it. Well, it's quite clever because if your dog like mine is a, is a sort of bath-phobic, right. you, can, it, you don't have to rinse it off, so you don't have to put them in the bath. And it does make them smell rather lovely. A friend of mine who's very, very fashion and a sort of self-proclaimed haute homosexual said that this is all about the pink pound. And he said, darling, it's a gays at work. Our pets are our babies and we need them to be on brand. 
And I think Kiehl's would be a very good one for that. It's lovely. I, I will be I will be spraying it on myself. Right. Does it work for cats? I'm sure it would. I don't know um, I'm going to try it with Rosie and Minnie because I think they might rebel. Yeah, you have to be careful. I With my dog, she's so resistant to water that I put it on my hand and sort of rub it gently onto her coat. Right. So she thinks she's being petted, ah. but actually she's being deodorized. Yes, you are a clever one, you are. Now, what well, about this one? Barber Dog Cologne, fourteen ninety five, com. You're not a fan, are you? Well, it smells a bit like boys I snogged in my teens. Right. You know, it's got that classic sort of brute perfumey. I mean, it it does very well at John Lewis. And I, they gave me some amazing statistic about it being up 82% oh. um, year on year. So clearly John Lewis customers love it. But I don't really want my dog to smell like a teenage boy. No. No, I don't think Pim wants to smell like a teenage boy. No, she's a she's sophisticated, uh, Andrew. What she, can I say? She, she's like a mum. Now, what about <laughs> Groomer's Choice Naturals Baby Powder, Aloe Vera Scented Dog Cologne, thirteen fifty nine? You give that a very good mark. Well, that's what my baby smells like. Oh. Um, this is what I've always put Pim in. I mean, actually, I love her natural smell. You know, it's my favourite smell in the world. But if she has ever rolled in the um, yes. the awful fox pee, yeah, then this is what gets her smelling of baby powder again, and it is rather lovely. A friend, a friend always says that she smells of powder puff, and she does, and it's uh... this. And they're a lovely little British company, um, and they're dog groomers themselves. And I have to say, this one is gorgeous. Well, and you give I spray it... my boyfriend with it. He he gave up deodorant during lockdown. So every now and then I'll go up to his shirt or his jeans and give it a quick, a yeah, quick spritz quick, of powder puff. Very good. And it's 10 out of 10. And just finally, Seaside Scent. What do we make of this? Good dog well, cologne. I, I think this one is, is so sophisticated they could sell it to humans. Right. This is by something called the Men's Society. Mm-hmm. And it's all, I mean, it's sort of couture. It's handcrafted on the Norfolk coast. And it's very minimal, but sort of flinty rocks and see. I think you could wear it yourself, Andrew. Do you think so? I think a man of your distinction could carry off the yeah. um, the coastal fragrance, as it is were. That, is a man of my distinction mean a man of my advanced years? It most certainly doesn't. It most certainly doesn't. <laughs> um, you know, I'm you know I'm a diehard fan. Yes, darling. Um, That's why you're here. But um. I, but I think this brings a little jollity to yes. us at a time when we're not feeling very jolly, are we? I mean, no, we're not, actually. And we have got you know, 11 million dogs, you make that point. And so do you think it's going to take off, dog cologne? I do. And, you know, I thought I was being utterly ridiculous um, sampling all these things. But everyone I know on my dog walk has got one. And Pimlico is, is very short-haired. Some of the, I mean, some of the big stinkers, they really need this. You don't, I mean, it's the same with cats, isn't it? You don't want the first thing people think when they walk into your home to be, oh, my God, they've got, they've a got dog. an ex. Yes, yeah. they've got exactly. um, And particularly with big, damp dogs. So, actually, I think given that everyone got dogs in lockdown, this one's going to run and run. But I think it is better to get one that's specifically designed for dogs because they have sort of different pH and you don't want to be spraying them with alcohol. And so one shouldn't waste one's number five on one's favourite dog. I think that's absolutely good advice as ever. It's a fabulous piece and fabulous tips about canine cologne from the equally fabulous Hannah Betts. Well, that's all we've got time for today. For the latest from the Daily Mail, download the Mail Plus app.
Every weekday at 5pm, you can listen to me all over again. I'm Andrew Pierce. This is The Andrew Pierce Show. I'll be back tomorrow. Have yourselves a great evening and good night. Good night.